Pastor Tom Keller shares this about Christian believers and our eternal security. Jesus even adds this in verse 28, no one will snatch them from me. And then as to how Jesus is so certain of this, he says this in verse 29, for my father has given them to me and he is more powerful than anyone else. No one can snatch them from the father's hand. So he says, I guarantee it. And my father who is stronger than anyone guarantees it as well. We've talked about this often, but I really hope this issue is settled in you, that you know with confidence that you're saved, redeemed, that's fixed in heaven. You're already seated in the heavenlies, and you have that confidence in that because it does affect everything. glad you could be with us. This is Study the Word. Our Bible teacher is Pastor Tom Keller, and he teaches us the entire Word of God from Genesis to Revelation. We're currently in chapter 10 of the Gospel of John. Here Jesus makes one of his famous I am statements. I am the good shepherd. Pastor Tom helps us gain a better understanding of what this means. Well, let's begin with a time of prayer. Father, I pray that in this time we would be sensitive to your Holy Spirit. Lord, you do have a custom-designed message for every single person here. And I, it may be outside of anything I say. And we just pray, Lord, we would be sensitive to you as you speak to us today out of your heart of love. And Father, we ask this all in Jesus' name. And all of God's people said, Amen. Amen. The section that Bob taught in my Bible is subtitled, The Good Shepherd and His Sheep. I chose two key verses of Scripture to launch our study this morning. John chapter 10, verse 9. Yes, I am the gate, Jesus speaking. Those who come in and through me will be saved. They will come and go freely and find good pastors. That's so beautiful. Then verse 4. After he has gathered his own flock, Jesus, he walks ahead of them, and they follow him because they know his voice. But now... In verse 22 of chapter 10, we find Jesus in Jerusalem once again, in the temple, being there to celebrate yet another yearly Jewish feast. Two months later, Passover is four months away. So from our story today, the crucifixion is just four months away. John 10, verse 22. It was now winter, and Jesus was in Jerusalem at the time of Hanukkah, the festival of dedication. So for all of chapters 7, 8, and 9, and last week's verses of chapter 10, Jesus was in Jerusalem for the purpose of celebrating the festival of booths, or Sukkot, celebrated in September, October, depending on the year. But today's lesson that takes place during the festival of Hanukkah, or the festival of dedication, which occurs somewhere between late November and late December. Remember, crucifixion is coming up around April. Now, the festival of Hanukkah is not, is not an ancient festival mandated under Mosaic law. It was, in fact, a celebration that originated only about 200 years before our chapter was lived out today. The history of Hanukkah involves a long story, but it centers on the desperately wicked Syrian king, Antiochus IV, who in 
who reigned between 175 B.C. and 164 B.C., who decided that he would eliminate the Jewish uh, religion once and for all. Uh, sound familiar? You know, when people say, what's all this about in Israel? Why is everyone coming against Israel? It's demonic. Satan hates Israel. Why are all the young people today standing for the Palestinians coming against Israel? It's all demonic. It is. Satan hates Israel. Same is true with Antiochus. He took for himself the name Antiochus Epiphanes, which means God manifest. He claimed to be God. God manifest. So in 170 BC, Antiochus attacked and conquered Jerusalem, killing 80,000 Jews. 80,000. Antiochus made it a crime punishable by death to possess a copy of the Torah or to circumcise children. For the, listen to this. For, for a mother who circumcised their boy in, in rebellion, the mothers were crucified with their children tied hanging around their necks. That's cruel. The temple was also profaned by Antiochus. The temple side chambers were used for prostitution, and Antiochus turned the temple altar into an altar dedicated to the Greek god Zeus. And in order to infuriate the Jews, which it did, Antiochus offered flesh of swine on the altar of God. In response, and against huge odds, a Jew by the name of Judas Maccabees and his brother rose up against and defeated the Syrian invaders and cleansed and purified the temple after three years of it being desecrated by Antiochus. And that is why Hanukkah is sometimes called the festival of the dedication of the altar. It is sometimes called the memorial of the purification of the temple. But most times it's referred to as the festival of lights. Now why the festival of lights? William Barclay says this, quote, the name festival of lights is traced back to the account that took place when the temple was purified in 164 B.C., it was told that when the temple had been purified and the great seven-branch candlestick relit, they only had one little vial of unpolluted oil that could be found. That cruise of oil was still intact and still sealed with the impress of the ring of the high priest. By all normal measures, there was only oil enough in that cruise to light the lamps for one single day. But by miracle, it lasted for eight days until new oil had been prepared according to the correct formula and had been consecrated for its sacred use. So for eight days, the lights burned in the temple and in the homes of the people in memory of the oil which God made to last for eight days instead of one. Would you allow me a one-minute diversion here? I find it very interesting that in the Talmud, which is uh, extra-biblical, they, they consider the Talmud to be even more valid than the Torah. Because he said, if the Torah is true, how much more the detail of the Torah. But in the Talmud, which was comprised 200, 600 AD, they tell that around 40 years before the destruction of the temple, up until the destruction of the temple, which was 70 AD, for the 40 years, which would be 30 AD, from 30 AD to 70 AD, listen, listen, the lamps in the temple went out every night. The priests could not keep the lights lit. Every, and they were commanded by the law to always keep the lights lit. 
They could not keep the lights lit. They went out every night of their own accord. And the Talmud registers this. This isn't some Christian book validating Christianity. This is a Jewish book recording history that the light went out. And why is it? Because there was no Holy Spirit. Oil represents the Holy Spirit. In this account, it represents the Holy Spirit. They celebrate the fact that, that God provided that oil. But after Jesus, there was no need for the temple. There was no Holy Spirit operating in the temple, and that light went out every single night. Isn't that fascinating? So this festival is why Jesus is in Jerusalem. And it's somewhere, as we said, between late November and late December, and he is once again in the temple. And remember, Jesus' crucifixion is only about four months away. John 10, verse 23. He was in the temple walking through the section known as Solomon's Colonnade. Now, New King James, King James says Solomon's porch. This was not actually built by Solomon because this was Herod's uh, uh, temple, but some believe it was rebuilt in the same spot as Solomon's porches. So picture Jesus in this kind of a setting teaching. So on the porch, the dialogue with the religious leaders begins in verse 24. The people surrounded him and asked, picture Jesus in that setting. The people surrounded him and asked, how long are you going to keep us in suspense? If you are the Messiah, tell us plainly. Jesus replied, I have already told you, and you don't believe me. The proof is the work that I do in my Father's name. But you don't believe me because you are not my sheep. Now here Jesus makes the claim of being God. Uh, indirectly. Jesus had told them the same thing before, again, but not directly. I think the closest he comes to this in the Gospel of John, in, in verse 19, he says it kind of cryptically. Jesus explained, I tell you the truth, the Son can do nothing by himself. He only does what he sees the Father doing. Whatever the Father does, the Son does also. A bit cryptically. John 8, verse 58 Jesus answered, I tell you the truth, before Abraham was even born, I am. God is the great I am, again, but a bit cryptically. John 10, verse 9, yes, I am the gate. Those who come in through me will be saved. They will come and go freely and will find good pastors. Again, cryptically pointing to his role. But here, again, Jesus says that the proof that he is the Messiah is the miracles that he does. It's the same as we saw back in John chapter 5, where Jesus said, but I have a greater witness in John than John the Baptist, my teachings and my miracles. The Father gave me these works to accomplish, and they prove that he sent me. And then Jesus continues the sheep and shepherd analogy, which began in the first part of chapter 10, in verse 26. But you don't believe me because you are not my sheep. My sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life, listen, and they will never perish. No one can snatch them away from me. My Father has given them to me, and he's more powerful than anyone else. No one can snatch them from the Father's hand. Now, note what this says. Jesus says, my sheep recognize my, my faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. You know, it's been said that the portal that God uses to reach man is 
through the ear, through hearing. It's been said that the portal that Satan uses to reach his man is through the eye, through sight. Interesting observation. Verse 27, my sheep recognize my voice. Do you remember Mary Magdalene in the garden looking for Jesus? How did she recognize Jesus? By seeing him? No. She thought he was a gardener. No. Jesus said one word, Mary. (laughs) I love that. She spun on a dime and said, Rabboni, master, by voice. This isn't in my notes, but I've said this before. You know, at the age that I'm at now, and I, maybe, I, maybe I'm not thought this through completely, but if I had to give up either eyesight or hearing, I'd give up eyesight. I know my wife, she's so beautiful. I'll never forget what she looks like. But to see her and not be able to hear her voice, not to be able to hear her sing across the room, not to hear her laugh, be a tragic loss. There's something about hearing that goes to a different place in us emotionally than sight. Sight is a bit external. Hearing goes deep into the heart. My sheep know my, my voice. And we'll follow that same voice, or at least we're supposed to follow that voice. That's the objective. And verse 27 makes that point. My sheep listen to my voice, I know them, and they follow me. That's your role. You're a sheep, your role, my role, is to follow the shepherd. And then, beautifully, we encounter one of the strongest assurances of God's commitment to the permanency of your salvation. John 10, verse 28. I get Jesus speaking. I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. Now look closely. It says give. I give them eternal life. It's a free gift. And note the word never. No one. Never. Never is an absolute. Can it change? Never. No. When it says they shall never perish, in Greek the word is umai, and it means never, completely not, not at all, by no means. And then the Greek word ion is added to give strength, and that means forever, in unbroken age, perpetuity of time, eternity. Sounds pretty final, doesn't it? Peter confirms the same idea in 1 Peter chapter 1. He says, all praise to God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. It is by his great mercy that we've been born again. Because God raised Jesus from the dead. Now we live with great, this is you folks. Now we live with great expectation. And we have a priceless inheritance. An inheritance that is kept in heaven for you. Pure and undefiled. Listen to these words. Beyond the reach of change and decay. And if that isn't strong enough, Jesus even adds this in verse 28. No one will snatch them from me. John MacArthur says, quote, No stronger passage in the New Testament exists for the absolute, eternal security of every true Christian. And then, as to how Jesus is so certain of this, he says this in verse 29. 
for my Father has given them to me, and he is more powerful than anyone else. No one can snatch them from the Father's hand. So he says, I guarantee it, and my Father, who is stronger than anyone, guarantees it as well. And folks, we've talked about this often, but I really hope this issue is settled in you, that you know with confidence that you're saved, redeemed, that's fixed in heaven. You're already seated in the heavenlies, and you have that confidence in that because it does affect everything, everything. And then in verse 30, Jesus hands the religious leaders the very ammunition they need to justify killing him on the spot, right then. Verse 30, the Father and I are one. Listen, if anyone ever challenges you by saying Jesus never claimed to be God, walk them to this verse. Now, why this one in particular? Because listen to what happened next. In John 10, 31, then the Jews took up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, many good works I have shown you from my Father. For which of these works do you stone me? The Jews answered him, saying, For a good work we do not stone you, but for blasphemy, and because you, being a man, make yourself God. So they said, We're going to stone you because you claim to be God. What did Jesus say? Oh, no, 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 I didn't mean that. No, I didn't mean that I... No, he didn't back away from that. He acknowledged that that, that is what he was saying. Verse 33 says, because you a mere man claim to be God, so they are saying to Jesus, Jesus, you claim to be God. And he did not deny the claim. And then Jesus quotes Psalm 82, verse 6. Jesus replied, it is written in your own scriptures that God said to certain leaders of the people, I say you are God's. God said to certain leaders of the people, I say you are God's. And you know the scriptures cannot be altered. So if those people who received God's message were called God's, why do you call it blasphemy when I say I am the Son of God? After all, the Father set me apart and sent me into the world. Here Jesus quotes Psalm 82 verse 6 where he says, I say you are God's, you're all children of the Most High. Now, in Hebrew, the word that's used here, this is critical, is the word Elohim. And Elohim can mean the one true God, but Elohim can also mean an earthly ruler, magistrate, or judge. It can mean either. Example of that reference is found in Exodus 22, verse 8, where it says, But if the thief is not found, the owner of the house must appear before the judges and they must determine whether the owner of the house has laid hands on the other person's property. If the thief is not found, the owner of the house must appear before the Elohim. Earthly judges, earthly magistrates. So Jesus does a play in words here. He pre-qualifies his statement by saying, the Torah says that certain leaders of the people are Elohim, judges, magistrates, earthly rulers. So how can the Bible deny my claim? And then once again, Jesus points to the miracles he is doing, healing the sick, raising the dead, as proof that he is who he claims to be. John 10, 37, Jesus speaking, don't believe me unless I carry out my Father's work. But if I do his work, believe in the evidence of the miraculous works I have done, even if you don't believe in me. 
Then you will know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. Jesus says, in essence, even if you don't believe me, if you don't believe anything that I say, how can you deny my miracles? The miracles are the proof that God has sent me. And Nicodemus actually confirmed this claim of Jesus way early in his ministry. In John 3, verse 1, there was a man named Nicodemus, a Jewish religious leader, who was a Pharisee. Most believe he was a member of the Sanhedrin. High ranking. After dark one evening, early in Jesus' ministry, he came to speak with Jesus. Rabbi, he said, listen, listen, we all know that God has sent you to teach us. Your miraculous signs are evidence that God is with you. That is exactly what Jesus is claiming here in John chapter 10. You see, these works were assigned to Jesus for three years to prove that he was sent by God. Again, back to John 5, verse 36. But I have a greater witness than John the Baptist, my teachings and my miracles. The Father gave, listen closely, the Father gave me these works to accomplish, and they prove that he sent me. Again, I've covered this before, but there are pastors, there are churches that say that it is God's will to heal every single person of every single illness here on earth if you just have enough faith. And they will try to make their case by saying, well, remember, Jesus healed every single person of every single illness. I thought the Bible says Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. Well, all of that is true. But those miracles were specifically assigned to Jesus during those three years in order to prove that he was who he claimed to be. Listen, listen, listen. If he had ever failed, ever one time failed to heal someone, it would have worked to invalidate his claim. He healed everyone. It was assigned to him as evidence, as proof that he was who he claimed to be. But after those three years were over, the need for those miracles to validate him being who he claimed to be had ended. And so did the absolute nature of Jesus healing all people of every illness and every situation. Does he still heal today? Absolutely. There's a, there are people out of balance on that side as well. Does he heal every single one? No. Why? Because sometimes he has a better plan. Sometimes he has a better plan. And that means us surrendering what we are sure is the best plan and acknowledging that maybe he has a better plan. I've often said this, I would be disappointed if I understood all that God did because if it did, I'd be making him a man. I don't want to make him a man. He's way above my pay grade when it comes to making those decisions. And as a result of Jesus' claim to be God, the Jewish leaders try to arrest him. Verse 39 once again, they tried to arrest him, but he got away and left them. He went beyond the Jordan River near the place where John was first baptizing and stayed there a while, and many followed him. John didn't perform miraculous signs, they remarked one another, but everything he said about this man has come true. And many who were there believed in Jesus. Now, it says that Jesus escaped not because he was afraid of what they would do to him, not to avoid what his destiny, but because he knew the cross was his destiny at Passover, still four months away. 
You're listening to Study the Word with Pastor Tom Keller and part of our study in the Gospel of John. Replay any message you enjoy by going to our website, ccleb.com, or visit our YouTube page. Subscribe to our channel at Calvary Chapel, Lebanon, and watch our services live or on demand. For a CD copy, call us at 717-273-5633. Again, that's 717-273-5633. Stay connected with us through Facebook and Instagram. You'll find us at Calvary Chapel, Lebanon, PA. God is doing a great work through Study the Word, and perhaps you'd like to be a part of it. You can do so through your prayers and financial support. To help us provide Study the Word on stations like this one all across the nation, visit ccleb.com or call 717-273-5633. If you prefer to write, let me give you our mailing address, Study the Word, 740 Willow Street, Lebanon, Pennsylvania, 17046. Tom Keller is the pastor of Calvary Chapel, Lebanon, and he loves to meet his radio listeners. For more information about our service times or to watch the live stream, visit ccleb.com. Or again, go to our YouTube channel at Calvary Chapel, Lebanon. There's much more to come in the Gospel of John. Join us in the days ahead. Study the Word with Pastor Tom Keller is presented by Calvary Chapel, Lebanon, Pennsylvania. and made possible through the support of our listeners. 